Section 18 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 3, Chapter 17. Letters 1877 to bermuda with twitchell proposition to thomas nast the whittier dinner mark twain must have been too busy to write letters that winter those that have survived are few and unimportant as a matter of fact he was writing the play ah sin with bret hart and getting it ready for production hart was a guest in the clemens home while the play was being written and not always a pleasant one he was full of requirements critical as to the menage to the point of sarcasm the long friendship between clemens and hart weakened under the strain of collaboration and intimate daily intercourse never to renew its old fibre it was an unhappy outcome of an enterprise which in itself was to prove of little profit the play ah sin had many good features, and with Charles T. Parslow in an amusing Chinese part, might have been made a success if the two authors could have harmoniously undertaken the needed repairs. It opened in Washington in May, and a letter from Parslow, written at the moment, gives a hint of the situation. From Charles T. Parslow to S. L. Clemens, Washington, D.C., May eleventh, 1877. Mr. Clemens, I forgot whether I acknowledged receipt of check by telegram. Hart has been here since Monday last, and done little or nothing yet, but promises to have something fixed by tomorrow morning. We have been making some improvements among ourselves. The last act is weak at the end, and I do hope Mr. Hart will have something for a good finish to the piece. The other acts, I think, are all right, now. Hope you have entirely recovered. I am not very well myself. The excitement of a first night is bad enough, but to have the annoyance with heart that I have is too much for a beginner. I ain't used to it. The houses have been picking up since Tuesday. Mr. Ford has worked well and hard for us. Yours in haste, Charles Thomas Parslow. The play drew some good houses in Washington, but it could not hold them for a run. Never mind what was the matter with it. Perhaps a very small change at the right point would have turned it into a fine success. We have seen in a former letter the obligation which Mark Twain confessed to Hart, a debt he had tried in many ways to repay, obtaining for him a liberal book contract with Bliss, advancing him frequent and large sums of money which Hart could not or did not repay, seeking to advance his fortunes in many directions the mistake came when he introduced another genius into the intricacies of his daily life clemens went down to washington during the early rehearsals of ah sin meantime rutherford b hayes had been elected president and clemens one day called with a letter of introduction from howells thinking to meet the chief executive his own letter to howells later probably does not give the real reason of his failure but it will be amusing to those who recall the erratic personality of george francis train train and twain were sometimes confused by the very unlettered 
or pretendedly by Mark Twain's friends. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Baltimore, May 1, 77. My dear Howells, found I was not absolutely needed in Washington, so I only stayed twenty-four hours, and am on my way home now. I called at the White House and got admission to Colonel Rogers, because I wanted to inquire what was the right hour to go and infest the President. It was my luck to strike the place in the dead waste and middle of the day, the very busiest time. I perceived that Mr. Rogers took me for George Francis Train, and had made up his mind not to let me get at the President. So at the end of half an hour, I took my letter of introduction from the table and went away. It was a great pity all round, and a great loss to the nation, for I was brimful of the Eastern question. I didn't get to see the President or the Chief Magistrate either, though I had sort of a glimpse of a lady at a window who resembled her portraits. Yours ever, Mark. Howells condoled with him on his failure to see the President. But, he added, if you and I had both been there, our combined skill would have no doubt procured us to be expelled from the White House by Fred Douglas. But the thing seems to be a complete failure as it was. Douglas, at this time being the Marshal of Columbia, gives special point to Howell's suggestion. Later, in May, Clemens took Twitchell for an excursion to Bermuda. He had begged Howells to go with them, but Howells, as usual, was full of literary affairs. Twitchell and Clemens spent four glorious days tramping the length and breadth of the beautiful island, and remembered it always as one of their happiest adventures. Put it down as an oasis, wrote Twitchell on his return. I'm afraid I shall not see as green a spot again soon. And it was your invention and your gift, and your company was the best of it. Indeed, I never took more comfort in being with you than on this journey, which, my boy, is saying a great deal. To Howells, Clemens triumphantly reported the success of the excursion. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Farmington Avenue, Hartford, May 29, 1877. Confound you! Joe Twitchell and I roamed about Bermuda day and night and never ceased to gabble and enjoy. About half the talk was, it is a burning shame that Howells isn't here. Nobody could get at the very meat and marrow of this pervading charm and deliciousness like Howells. How Howells would revel in the quaintness and the simplicity of this people and the Sabbath repose of this land. What an imperishable sketch Howells would make of Captain West, the whaler, and Captain Hope, with the patient, pathetic face, wander in all the oceans for forty-two years, lucky in none, coming home defeated once more, now, minus his ship, resigned, uncomplaining, being used to this. What a rattling chapter Howells would make out of the small boy Alfred, with his alert eye, and military brevity, and exactness of speech, and out of the old landlady, and her sacred onions, and her daughter, and the visiting clergyman, and the ancient pianos of Hamilton, and the venerable music in vogue there, 
and forty other things which we shall leave untouched or touched but lightly upon we not being worthy damn howls for not being here this usually from me not twitchell oh your insufferable pride which will have a fall some day if you had gone with us and let me pay the fifty dollars which the trip and the board and the various knick-knacks and mementos would cost i would have picked up enough droppings from your conversation to pay me five hundred per cent profit in the way of the several magazine articles which i could have written whereas i can now write only one or two and am therefore largely out of pocket by your proud ways ponder these things lord what a perfectly bewitching excursion it was i travelled under an assumed name and was never molested with a polite attention from anybody love to you all yours ever mark aldrich meantime had invited the clemenses to ponkapog during the bermuda absence and clemens hastened to send him a line expressing regrets at the close he said to t b aldrich in ponkapog massachusetts farmington avenue hartford june three eighteen seventy seven day after tomorrow we leave for the hills beyond elmira new york for the summer when i shall hope to write a book of some sort or other to beat the people with a work similar to your new one in the atlantic is what i mean though i have not heard what the nature of that one is immoral i suppose well you are right such books sell best howells says Howells says he is going to make his next book indelicate. He says he thinks there is money in it. He says there is a large class of the young in schools and seminaries who... But you let him tell you. He has ciphered it all down to a demonstration. With the warmest remembrances to the pair of you, ever yours, Samuel L. Clemens. Clemens would naturally write something about Bermuda, and began at once, Random Notes of an Idle Excursion, and presently completed four papers which Howells eagerly accepted for the Atlantic. Then we find him plunging into another play, this time alone. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, June 27, 1877. My dear Howells, if you should not like the first two chapters, send them to me and begin with chapter three, or part three, I believe you call these things in the magazine. I have finished number four, which closes the series, and will mail it tomorrow if I think of it. I like this one. I like the preceding one, already mailed to you some time ago, but I had my doubts about one and two do not hesitate to squelch them even with derision and insult today i am deep in a comedy which i began this morning principal character that old detective i skeletoned the first act and wrote the second today and am dog-tired now fifty-four close pages of manuscript in seven hours once i wrote fifty-five pages at a sitting that was on the opening chapters of the gilded age novel when I cool down an hour from now, I shall go to zero, I judge. Yours ever, Mark. Clemens had doubts as to the quality of the Bermuda papers, and with some reason. 
they did not represent him at his best nevertheless they were pleasantly entertaining and howells expressed full approval of them for atlantic use the author remained troubled to w d howells in boston elmira july four eighteen seventy seven my dear howells it is splendid of you to say those pleasant things but i am still plagued with doubts about parts one and two if you have any don't print if otherwise please make some cold villain like lathrop read and pass sentence on them mind i thought they were good at first it was the second reading that accomplished its hellish purpose on me put them up for a new verdict part four has lain in my pigeonhole a good while and when i put it there i had a christian's confidence in four aces in it and you can be sure it will skip toward connecticut tomorrow before any fatal fresh reading makes me draw my bet. I've piled up 151 manuscript pages on my comedy. The first, second, and fourth acts are done, and done to my satisfaction, too. Tomorrow, and next day, we'll finish the third act, and the play. I have not written less than 30 pages in a day since I began. Never had so much fun over anything in my life never such consuming interest and delight but lord bless you the second reading will fetch it and just think i had saul smith russell in my mind's eye for the old detective's part and hang it he has gone off pottering with oliver optic or else the papers lie i read everything about the president's doings there with exultation i wish that old ass of a private secretary hadn't taken me for george francis train if ignorance were a means of grace, I wouldn't trade that gorilla's chances for the Archbishop of Canterbury's. I shall call on the President again by and by. I shall go in my war paint. And if I am obstructed, the nation will have the unusual spectacle of a private secretary with a pen over one ear, a tomahawk over the other. I read the entire Atlantic this time. Wonderful number. Mrs. Rose Terry Cook's story was a ten-strike. I wish she would write twelve old-time New England tales a year. Good times to y'all. Mind, if you don't run here for a few days, you will go to hence without having had a full glimpse of heaven. Mark. The play Ah Sin, that had done little enough in Washington, was that summer given another trial by Augustine Daly, at the Fifth Avenue Theatre, New York, with a fine company. Clemens had undertaken to doctor the play, and it would seem to have had an enthusiastic reception on the opening night, but it was a summer audience, unspoiled by many attractions. Ah, Sin was never a success in the New York season, never a money-maker on the road. The reference in the first paragraph of the letter that follows is to the Bermuda chapters which Mark Twain was publishing simultaneously in England and America. Elmira, August 3, 1877. My dear Howells, I have mailed one set of the slips to London and told Bentley you would print September 15 in October Atlantic, and he must not print earlier in Temple Bar. Have I got the dates and things right? 
I am powerful glad to see that number one reads a nation's sight better in print than it did in manuscript. I told Bentley we'd send him the slips, each time, six weeks before day of publication. We can do that, can't we? Two months ahead would be still better, I suppose, but I don't know. Ah Sin went a-booming at the Fifth Avenue. The reception of Colonel Sellers was calm compared to it. The criticisms were just. The criticisms of the great New York dailies are always just, intelligent, and square, and honest. Notwithstanding by a blunder which nobody was seriously to blame for, I was made to say exactly the opposite of this in a newspaper some time ago. Never said it at all, and moreover, I never thought it. I could not publicly correct it before the play appeared in New York, because that would look as if I had really said that thing, and then was moved by fears for my pocket and my reputation to take it back. But I can correct it now, and shall do it, for now my motives cannot be impugned. When I began this letter, it had not occurred to me to use you in this connection, but it occurs to me now. Your opinion and mine, uttered a year ago, and repeated more than once since, that the candor and ability of the New York critics were beyond question, is a matter which makes it proper enough that I should speak through you at this time. Therefore, if you will print this paragraph somewhere, it may remove the impression that I say unjust things which I do not think, merely for the pleasure of talking. There, now. Can't you say... In a letter to Mr. Howells of the Atlantic Monthly, Mark Twain describes the reception of the new comedy Ah Sin, and then goes on to say, etc. Beginning at the star with the words, The criticisms were just. Mrs. Clemens says, Don't ask that of Mr. Howells. It will be disagreeable to him. I hadn't thought of it but I will bet two to one on the correctness of her instinct. We shall see. Will you cut that paragraph out of this letter and precede it with the remarks suggested, or with better ones, and send it to the Globe or some other paper? You can't do me a bigger favor, and yet if it is in the least disagreeable, you mustn't think of it. But let me know right away, for I want to correct this thing before it grows stale again. I explained myself to only one critic, the world. The consequence was a noble notice of the play. This one called on me, else I shouldn't have explained myself to him. I have been putting in a deal of hard work on that play in New York, but it is full of incurable defects. My old Plunkett family seemed wonderfully coarse and vulgar on the stage but it was because they were played in such an outrageously and inexcusably coarse way. The Chinaman is killingly funny. I don't know when I have enjoyed anything as much as I did him. The people say there isn't enough of him in the piece. That's a triumph. There'll never be any more of him in it. John Broham said, Read the list of things which the critics have condemned in the piece, and you have unassailable proofs that the play contains all the requirements of success and a long life. That is true. Nearly every time the audience roared, I knew it was over something that would be condemned in the morning, justly too, but must be left in, 
for low comedies are written for the drawing-room, the kitchen, and the stable. And if you cut out the kitchen and the stable, the drawing-room can't support the play by itself. There was as much money in the house the first two nights as in the first ten of cellars. Having heard from the third, I came away. Yours ever, Mark. In a former letter we have seen how Mark Twain, working on a story that was to stand as an example of his best work and become one of his surest claims to immortality, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, displayed little enthusiasm in his undertaking. In the following letter, which relates the conclusion of his detective comedy, we find him at the other extreme, on very tiptoe with enthusiasm over something wholly without literary value or dramatic possibility. One of the hallmarks of genius is the inability to discriminate as to the value of its output. Simon Wheeler, amateur detective, was a dreary, absurd, impossible performance, as wild and unconvincing in incident and dialogue as anything out of an asylum could be. The title which he first chose for it, Balaam's Ass, was properly in keeping with the general scheme. Yet Mark Twain, still warm with the creative fever, had the fullest faith in it as a work of art and a winner of fortune. It would never see the light of production, of course. We shall see presently that the distinguished playwright Dion Boussicot good-naturedly complimented it as being better than Ah Sen. One must wonder what that skilled artist really thought, and how he could do even this violence to his conscience. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, Wednesday, P.M., 1877. My dear Howells, it's finished. I was misled by hurried mispaging. There were ten pages of notes and over three hundred pages of manuscript when the play was done. Did it in forty-two hours by the clock. Forty pages of the Atlantic, but then, of course, it's very fat those are the figures but i don't believe them myself because the thing's impossible but let that pass all day long and every day since i finished in the rough i have been diligently altering amending rewriting cutting down i finished finally today can't think of anything else in the way of an improvement i thought i would stick to it while the interest was hot and i am mighty glad i did a week from now it will be frozen. Then revising would be drudgery. You see, I learned something from the fatal blunder of putting our sin aside before it was finished. She's all right now. She reads in two hours and twenty minutes and will play not longer than two and three-quarter hours. Nineteen characters, three acts. I bunch two into one. Tomorrow I will draw up an exhaustive synopsis to insert in the printed title page for copywriting, and then on Friday or Saturday I go to New York to remain a week or ten days and lay for an actor. Wish you could run down there and have a holiday. T'would be fun. My wife won't have Balaam's ass. Therefore, I call the piece Captain Simon Wheeler, the Amateur Detective. Yours, Mark. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, August twenty nine, eighteen seventy seven. 
My dear Howells, just got your letter last night. No, during that article. One of the Bermuda chapters. It made me cry when I read it in proof. It was so oppressively and ostentatiously poor. Skim your eye over it again, and you will think as I do. If Isaac and the prophets of Baal can be doctored gently and made permissible, it will redeem the thing. But if it can't, let's burn all of the articles except the tail end of it and use that as an introduction to the next article, as I suggested in my letter to you of day before yesterday. I had this proof from Cambridge before yours came. Boosie Co. says my new play is ever so much better than our sin. Says the amateur detective is a bully character, too. An actor is chawing over the play in New York to see if the old detective is suited to his abilities. Haven't heard from him yet. If you've got that paragraph by you yet, and if in your judgment it would be good to publish it, and if you absolutely would not mind doing it, then I think I'd like to have you do it, or else put some other words in my mouth that will be proper and publish them. But mind, don't think of it for a moment if it is distasteful, and doubtless it is. I value your judgment more than my own as to the wisdom of saying anything at all in this matter. To say nothing leaves me in an injurious position, and yet maybe I might do better to speak to the men themselves when I go to New York. This was my latest idea, and it looked wise. We expect to leave here for home September 4, reaching there the 8th, but we may be delayed a week. Curious thing, I read passages from my play and a full synopsis to Boosie Co., who was rewriting a play which he wrote and laid aside three or four years ago. My detective is about that age, you know. Then he read a passage from his play, where a real detective does some things that are as idiotic as some of my old Wheeler's performances. Showed me the passages, and behold, his man's name is Wheeler. However, his Wheeler is not a prominent character, so we'll not alter the names. My Wheeler's name is taken from the old Jumping Frog sketch. I am rereading Tickner's diary, and am charmed with it though I still say he refers to too many good things when he could just as well have told them. Think of the man traveling eight days in convoy and familiar intercourse with a band of outlaws through the mountain fastnesses of Spain, he the fourth stranger they had encountered in thirty years, and compressing this priceless experience into a single colorless paragraph of his diary. They spun yarns to this unworthy devil, too. I wrote you a very long letter a day or two ago, but Susie Crane wanted to make a copy of it to keep, so it has not gone yet. It may go today, possibly. We unite in warm regards to you and yours, yours ever, Mark. The Tickner referred to in a former letter was Professor George Tickner of Harvard College, a history writer of distinction. On the margin of the diary, Mark Twain once wrote, Tickner is a millet who makes all men fall in love with him, and adds, Millet 
was the cause of lovable qualities in people and then he admired and loved those persons for the very qualities which he without knowing it had created in them perhaps it would be strictly truer of these two men to say that they bore within them the divine something in whose presence the evil in people fled away and hid itself while all that was good in them came spontaneously forward out of the forgotten walls and corners in their systems where it was accustomed to hide it is frank millet the artist he is speaking of a knightly soul whom all the clemens household loved and who would one day meet his knightly end with those other brave men that found death together when the titanic went down the clemens family was still at quarry farm at the end of august and one afternoon there occurred a startling incident which mark twain thought worth setting down in practically duplicate letters to howells and to dr john brown it may be of interest to the reader to know that john t lewis the colored man mentioned lived to a good old age a pensioner of the clemens family and in the course of time of h h rogers howells's letter follows it is the very long letter referred to in the foregoing to w d howells and wife in boston elmira august twenty five seventy seven my dear howellses i thought i ought to make a sort of record of it for further reference the pleasantest way to do that would be to write it to somebody but that somebody would let it leak into print and that we wish to avoid the houses would be safe so let us tell the houses about it day before yesterday was a fine summer day away up here on the summit aunt marsh and cousin may marsh were here visiting susie crane and livy at our farmhouse by and by mother langdon came up the hill in the high carriage with nora the nurse and little jervis charlie langdon's little boy timothy the coachman driving behind these came charlie's wife and little girl in the buggy with the new young spry gray horse a high stepper Theodore Crane arrived a little later. The Bay and Susie were on hand with their nurse Rosa. I was on hand, too. Susie Crane's trio of colored servants ditto, these being Josie, housemaid, Auntie Cord, cook, age sixty-two, turbaned, very tall, very broad, very fine every way. See her portrait in a true story just as i heard it in my sketches chocolate the laundress as the bay calls her she can't say charlotte still taller still more majestic of proportions turbaned very black straight as an indian age twenty-four then there was the farmer's wife colored and her little girl susie wasn't it a good audience to get up an excitement before good excitable inflammable material lewis was still downtown three miles away with his two-horse wagon to get a load of manure lewis is the farmer colored he is of mighty frame and muscle stocky stooping ungainly has a good manly face and a clear eye age about forty-five 
and the most picturesque of men when he sits in his fluttering workday rags humped forward into a bunch with his aged slouch hat mashed down over his ears and neck it is a spectacle to make the broken-hearted smile lewis has worked mighty hard and remained mighty poor at the end of each whole year's toil he can't show a gain of fifty dollars he had borrowed money of the cranes till he owed them seven hundred dollars and he being conscientious and honest imagine what it was to him to have to carry this stubborn helpless load year in and year out well sunset came and ida the young and comely charlie langdon's wife and her little julia and the nurse nora drove out at the gate behind the new gray horse and started down the long hill the high carriage receiving its load under the port cochere ida was seen to turn her face toward us across the fence and intervening lawn theodore waved good-bye to her for he did not know that her sign was a speechless appeal for help the next moment livy said ida's driving too fast down here she followed it with a sort of scream her horse is running away we could see two hundred yards down that descent the buggy seemed to fly it would strike obstructions and apparently spring the height of a man from the ground theodore and i left the shrieking crowd behind and ran down the hill bareheaded and shouting a neighbor appeared at his gate a tenth of a second too late the buggy vanished past him like a thought my last glimpse showed it for one instant far down the descent springing high in the air out of a cloud of dust and then it disappeared as i flew down the road my impulse was to shut my eyes as i turned them to the right or left and so delay for a moment the ghastly spectacle of mutilation and death i was expecting i ran on and on still spared this spectacle but saying to myself i shall see it at the turn of the road they never can pass that turn alive when i came in sight of that turn i saw two wagons there bunched together one of them full of people i said just so they are stand petrified at the remains but when i got amongst that bunch there sat ida in her buggy and nobody hurt not even the horse or the vehicle ida was pale but serene as i came tearing down she smiled back over her shoulder at me and said well we're alive yet aren't we a miracle had been performed nothing else you see lewis the prodigious humped upon his front seat had been toiling up on his load of manure he saw the frantic horse plunging down the hill toward him on a full gallop throwing his heels as high as a man's head at every jump so lewis turned his team diagonally across the road just at the turn thus making a v with the fence the running horse could not escape that but must enter it then lewis sprang to the ground and stood in this v he gathered his vast strength and with a perfect creedmoor aim he seized the gray horse's bit as it plunged by and fetched him up standing it was down here mind you ten feet further down here neither lewis nor any other man could have saved them for they would have been on the abrupt turn then but how this miracle was ever accomplished at all by human strength generalship and accuracy is clean beyond my comprehension
and grows more so the more i go and examine the ground and try to believe it was actually done i know one thing well if lewis had missed his aim he would have been killed on the spot in the trap he had made for himself and we should have found the rest of the remains away down at the bottom of the steep ravine ten minutes later theodore and i arrived opposite the house with the servant straggling after us and shouted to the distracted group on the porch everybody safe believe it why how could they they knew the road perfectly we might as well have said it to people who had seen their friends go over niagara however we convinced them and then instead of saying something or going on crying they grew very still words could not express it i suppose nobody could do anything that night or sleep either but there was a deal of moving talk with long pauses between pictures of that flying carriage these pauses represented this picture intruded itself all the time and disjointed the talk but yesterday evening late when lewis arrived from downtown he found his supper spread and some presents of books there with very complimentary writings on the fly-leaves and certain very complimentary letters and more or less greenbacks of dignified denomination penned to these letters and fly-leaves and one said among other things signed by the cranes we cancel four hundred dollars of your indebtedness to us etc etc the end thereof is not yet of course for charlie langdon is west and will arrive ignorant of all these things to-day the supper-room had been kept locked and imposingly secret and mysterious until lewis should arrive but around that part of the house were gathered lewis's wife and child chocolate josie auntie cord and our rosa canvassing things and waiting impatiently they were all on hand when the curtain rose now auntie cord is a violent methodist and lewis an implacable dunker baptist those two are inveterate religious disputants the revealments having been made auntie cord said with effusion now I let folks go on saying they ain't no god lewis the lord sent you there to stop that horse says lewis then who sent the horse there in sich a shape but i want to call your attention to one thing when lewis arrived the other evening after saving those lives by a feat which i think is the most marvelous of any i can call to mind when he arrived hunched up on his manure wagon and as grotesquely picturesque as usual everybody wanted to go and see how he looked they came back and said he was beautiful it was so too and yet he would have photographed exactly as he would have done any day these past seven years that he has occupied this farm august twenty seven p s our little romance in real life is happily and satisfactorily completed charlie has come listened acted and now john t lewis has ceased to consider himself as belonging to that class called the poor it has been known during some years that it was lewis's purpose to buy a thirty-dollar silver watch some day if he ever got where he could afford it Today ida has given him a new sumptuous gold swiss stem winding stopwatch 
and if any scoffer shall say, Behold, this thing is out of character, there is an inscription within which will silence him, for it will teach him that this wearer aggrandizes the watch, not the watch the wearer. I was asked beforehand if this would be a wise gift, and I said, Yes, the very wisest of all. I know the colored race, and I know that in Lewis's eyes this fine toy will throw the other more valuable testimonials far away into the shade. If he lived in England, the Humane Society would give him a gold medal as costly as this watch, and nobody would say it is out of character. If Lewis chose to wear a town clock, who would become it better? Lewis has sound common sense, and is not going to be spoiled. The instant he found himself possessed of money, he forgot himself in a plan to make his old father comfortable, who is wretchedly poor and lives down in Maryland. His next act, on the spot, was the proffer to the cranes of the three hundred dollars of his remaining indebtedness to them. This was put off by them to the indefinite future, for he is not going to be allowed to pay that at all, though he doesn't know it. A letter of acknowledgment from Lewis contains a sentence which raises it to the dignity of literature. But I beg to say humbly that inasmuch as divine providence saw fit to use me as an instrument for the saving of those precious lives, the honor conferred upon me was greater than the feat performed. That is well said. Yours ever, Mark. Howells was moved to use the story in the Contributors Club and warned Clemens against letting it get into the newspapers. He declared he thought it one of the most impressive things he had ever read, but Clemens seems never to have allowed it to be used in any form. In its entirety, therefore, it is quite new matter. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Hartford, September 19, 1877. My dear Howells, I don't really see how the story of the runaway horse could read well with the little details of names and places and things left out. They are the true life of all narrative. It wouldn't quite do to print them at this time. We'll talk about it when you come. Delicacy, a sad, sad false delicacy, robs literature of the best two things among its belongings, family circle narrative and obscene stories. But no matter. In that better world which I trust we are all going to, I have the hope and belief that they will not be denied us. Say, Twitchell and I had an adventure at sea four months ago which I did not put in my Bermuda articles, because there was not enough to it. But the press dispatches bring the sequel today, and now there's plenty to it. A sailless, wasteless, chartless, compassless, grubless old condemned tub that has been drifting helpless about the ocean for four months and a half begging bread and water like any other tramp flying a signal of distress permanently and with thirteen innocent marveling chuckle-headed bermuda niggers on board taking a pleasure excursion our ship fed the poor devils on the twenty-fifth of last may far out at sea and left them to bullyrag their way to new york and now they ain't as near New York as they were then by 250 miles. 
they have drifted 750 miles and are still drifting in the relentless Gulf Stream. What a delicious magazine chapter it would make! But I had to deny myself. I had to come right out in the papers at once with my details so as to try to raise the government's sympathy sufficiently to have better succor sent them than the Cutter Colfax, which went a little way in search of them the other day and then struck a fog and gave it up. If the President were in Washington, I would telegraph him. When I hear that the Jonas Smith has been found again, I mean to send for one of those darkies to come to Hartford and give me his adventures for an Atlantic article. Likely you will see my today's article in the newspapers. Yours ever, Mark. The revenue cutter Colfax went after the Jonas Smith, thinking there was mutiny or other crime on board. It occurs to me now that, since there is only mere suffering and misery, and nobody to punish, it ceases to be a matter which a Republican form of government will feel authorized to interfere in further. Damn a Republican form of government! Clemens thought he had given up lecturing for good. He was prosperous, and he had no love for the platform. But one day an idea popped into his head. Thomas Nast, the father of the American cartoon, had delivered a successful series of illustrated lectures, talks for which he made the drawings as he went along. Mark Twain's idea was to make a combination with Nast. His letter gives us the plan in full. To Thomas Nast, Morristown, New Jersey, Hartford, Connecticut, 1877. My dear Nast, I did not think I should ever stand on a platform again until the time was come for me to say I die innocent. But the same old offers keep arriving. I have declined them all, just as usual, though sorely tempted as usual. Now I do not decline because I mind talking to an audience, but because one traveling alone is so heartbreakingly dreary, and two shouldering the whole show is such a cheer-killing responsibility. Therefore, I now propose to you what you proposed to me in 1867, ten years ago when I was unknown, viz. that you stand on the platform and make pictures, and I stand by you and blackguard the audience. I should enormously enjoy meandering around to big towns, don't want to go to the little ones, with you for company. My idea is not to fatten the lecture agents and lyceums on the spoils, but put all the ducats religiously into two equal piles, and say to the artist and lecturer, Absorb these. For instance, here follows a plan and a possible list of cities to be visited. The letter continues. Call the gross receipts $100,000 for four months and a half, and the profit from 60000 to 75000 I try to make the figures large enough and leave it to the public to reduce them. I did not put in Philadelphia because Pugh owns that town, and last winter, when I made a little reading trip, he only paid me $300 and pretended his concert, I read 15 minutes in the midst of a concert, cost him a vast sum and so he couldn't afford any more. I could get up a better concert with a barrel of cats. 
I have imagined two or three pictures and concocted the accompanying remarks to see how the thing would go. I was charmed. Well, you think it over, Nast, and drop me a line. We should have some fun. Yours truly, Samuel L. Clemens. The plan came to nothing. Nast, like Clemens, had no special taste for platforming, and while undoubtedly there would have been large profits in the combination, the promise of the venture did not compel his acceptance. In spite of his distaste for the platform, Mark Twain was always giving readings and lectures, without charge, for some worthy Hartford cause. He was ready to do what he could to help an entertainment along, if he could do it in his own way, an original way sometimes, and not always gratifying to the committee whose plans were likely to be prearranged. For one thing, Clemens, supersensitive in the matter of putting himself forward in his own town, often objected to any special exploitation of his name. This always distressed the committee, who saw a large profit to their venture in the prestige of his fame. The following characteristic letter was written in self-defense when, on one such occasion, a committee had become sufficiently peevish to abandon a worthy enterprise. To an Entertainment Committee in Hartford, November 9, E. S. Sykes, Esquire. Dear Sir, Mr. Burton's note puts upon me all the blame of the destruction of an enterprise which had for its object the succor of the Hartford poor. That is to say, this enterprise has been dropped because of the dissatisfaction with Mr. Clemens' stipulations. Therefore, I must be allowed to say a word in my defense. There were two stipulations, exactly two. I made one of them. If the other was made at all, it was a joint one, from the choir and me. My individual stipulation was that my name should be kept out of the newspapers. The joint one was that sufficient tickets to ensure a good sum should be sold before the date of the performance should be set. Understand, we wanted a good sum. I do not think any of us bothered about a good house. It was money we were after. Now, you perceive that my concern is simply with my individual stipulation. Did that break up the enterprise? Eugene Burton said he would sell $300 worth of the tickets himself. Mr. Smith said he would sell 200 or $300 worth himself. My plan for Asylum Hill Church would have insured $150 from that quarter. All this in the face of my stipulation. It was proposed to raise $1,000. Did my stipulation render the raising of 400 or $500 in a dozen churches impossible? My stipulation is easily defensible. When a mere reader or lecturer has appeared three or four times in a town of Hartford's size, he is a good deal more than likely to get a very unpleasant snub if he shoves himself forward about once or twice more. Therefore, I long ago made up my mind that whenever I again appeared here, it should be only in a minor capacity and not as a chief attraction. Now, I placed that harmless and very justifiable stipulation before the committee the other day. They carried it to headquarters, and it was accepted there. 
I am not informed that any objection was made to it, or that it was regarded as an offense. It seems late in the day now, after a good deal of trouble has been taken, and a good deal of thankless work done by the committees, to suddenly tear up the contract and then turn and bowl me down from long range as being the destroyer of it. If the enterprise has failed because of my individual stipulation, here you have my proper and reasonable reasons for making that stipulation. If it has failed because of the joint stipulation, put the blame there and let us share it collectively. I think our plan was a good one. I do not doubt that Mr. Burton still approves of it, too. I believe the objections come from other quarters, and not from him. Mr. Twitchell used the following words in last Sunday's sermon, if I remember correctly. My hearers, the prophet Deuteronomy says this wise thing. Though ye plan a goodly house for the poor, and plan it with wisdom, and do take off your coats and set to build it, with high courage, yet shall the croaker presently come, and lift up his voice, having his coat on, and say, Verily, this plan is not well planned, and he will go his way. And the obstructionist will come, and lift up his voice, having his coat on, and say, Behold, this is but a sick plan, and he will go his way. And the man that knows it all will come and lift up his voice, having his coat on, and say, Lo, call they this a plan? Then will he go his way, and the places which knew him once shall know him no more forever, because he was not, for God took him. Now therefore I say unto you, Verily, that house will not be budded, and I say this also, he that waiteth for all men to be satisfied with his plan, let him seek eternal life, for he shall need it. This portion of Mr. Twitchell's sermon made a great impression upon me, and I was grieved that someone had not wakened me earlier so that I might have heard what went before. S. L. Clemens Mr. Sykes, of the firm of Sykes & Newton, the Allen House Pharmacy, replied that he had read the letter to the committee and that it had set those gentlemen right who had not before understood the situation. If others were as ready to do their part as yourself, our poor would not want assistance, he said in closing. We come now to an incident which assumes the proportions of an episode, even of a catastrophe, in Mark Twain's career. The disaster was due to a condition noted a few pages earlier the inability of genius to judge its own efforts. The story has now become history, printed history, it having been sympathetically told by Howells in My Mark Twain, and more exhaustively with a report of the speech that invited the lightning in a former work by the present writer. The speech was made at John Greenleaf Whittier's 70th birthday dinner given by the Atlantic staff on the evening of December 17, 1877. It was intended as a huge joke, a joke that would shake the sides of these venerable Boston deities, Longfellow, Emerson, Holmes, and the rest of that venerated group. Clemens had been a favorite at the Atlantic lunches and dinners, a speech by him always an event. This time he decided to outdo himself.
he did that but not in the way he had intended to use one of his own metaphors he stepped out to meet the rainbow and got struck by lightning his joke was not of the boston kind or size when its full nature burst upon the company when the ears of the assembled diners heard the sacred names of longfellow emerson and holmes lightly associated with human aspects removed oh very far removed from cambridge and concord a chill fell upon the diners that presently became amazement and then creeping paralysis nobody knew afterward whether the great speech that he had so gaily planned ever came to a natural end or not somebody the next on the program attempted to follow him but presently the company melted out of the doors and crept away into the night it seemed to mark twain that his career had come to an end back in hartford sweating and suffering through sleepless nights he wrote howells his anguish to w d howells in boston sunday night eighteen seventy seven my dear howells my sense of disgrace does not abate it grows i see that it is going to add itself to my list of permanencies a list of humiliations that extends back to when i was seven years old and which keep on persecuting me regardless of my repentances i feel that my misfortune has injured me all over the country therefore it will be best that i retire from before the public at present it will hurt the atlantic for me to appear in its pages now so it is my opinion and my wife's that the telephone story had better be suppressed will you return those proofs or revises to me so that i can use the same on some future occasion it seems as if i must have been insane when i wrote that speech and saw no harm in it no disrespect toward those men whom i reverence so much and what shame i brought upon you after what you said in introducing me it burns me like fire to think of it the whole matter is a dreadful subject let me drop it here at least on paper penitently yours mark howells sent back a comforting letter i have no idea of dropping you out of the atlantic he wrote and mr houghton has still less if possible you are going to help and not hurt us many a year yet if you will you are not going to be floored by it there is more justice than that even in this world howells added that charles eliot norton had expressed just the right feeling concerning the whole affair and that many who had not heard the speech but read the newspaper reports of it had found it without offence clemens wrote contrite letters to holmes emerson and longfellow and received most gracious acknowledgments emerson indeed had not heard the speech his faculties were already blurred by the mental mists that would eventually shut him in clemens wrote again to howells this time with less anguish to w d howells in boston hartford friday eighteen seventy seven my dear howells your letter was a godsend and perhaps the welcomest part of it was your consent that i write to those gentlemen for you discouraged my hints in that direction that morning in boston rightly too for my offence was yet too new then warner has tried to hold up our hands like the good fellow he is 
but poor twitchell could not say a word and confessed that he would rather take nearly any punishment than face livy and me he hasn't been here since it is curious but i pitched earlier upon mr norton as the very man who would think some generous thing about that matter whether he said it or not it is splendid to be a man like that but it is given to few to be i wrote a letter yesterday and sent a copy to each of the three i wanted to send a copy to mr whittier also since the offence was done also against him being committed in his presence and he the guest of the occasion besides holding the well-nigh sacred place he does in his people's estimation but i didn't know whether to venture or not and so ended by doing nothing it seemed an intrusion to approach him and even livy seemed to have her doubts as to the best and properest way to do in the case i do not reverence mr emerson less but somehow i could approach him easier send me those proofs if you have got them handy i want to submit them to wiley he won't show them to anybody had a very pleasant and considerate letter from mr houghton to-day and was very glad to receive it you can't imagine how brilliant and beautiful that new brass fender is and how perfectly naturally it takes its place under the carved oak how they did scour it up before they sent it i lied a good deal about it when i came home so for once i kept a secret and surprised livy on a christmas morning i haven't done a stroke of work since the atlantic dinner have only moped around but i'm going to try tomorrow how could i ever have ah well i am a great and sublime fool but then i am god's fool and all his works must be contemplated with respect livy and i join in the warmest regards to you and yours yours ever mark longfellow in his reply said i do not believe anybody was much hurt certainly i was not and holmes tells me he was not so i think you may dismiss the matter from your mind without further remorse holmes wrote it never occurred to me for a moment to take offence or feel wounded by your playful use of my name Miss Ellen Emerson replied for her father, in a letter to Mrs. Clemens, that the speech had made no impression upon him, giving at considerable length the impression it had made on herself and other members of the family. Clearly it was not the principals who were hurt, but only those who held them in awe, though one can realize that this would not make it much easier for Mark Twain. End of section 18. Recording by James K. White. Chula Vista.